Father God, Almighty God and Father, Saviour, bless each and every one of us in this building. Let us learn from you, not from me, what your word says, what your Holy Spirit leads us to, and let us be obedient to that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Morning. Morning. Just about. After listening to some of the songs that uh, James led us in, it reminded me of Psalm 103, certainly some of the kids' songs. For as the, thank you, I paid for two. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You can't measure east to west. You can measure north to south. Technically, you can measure the length and breadth of the universe, but the universe grows all the time, so if you measured it today, it would be a different answer tomorrow. So that's how far God's mercy stretches towards us. You can measure the North Pole to the South Pole, but you can't measure east to west. God's mercy, forgiveness, love is immeasurable. And we've been looking at Ephesians. We're going to look at some of God's immeasurable love. Let me ask you, how quick are you? Someone say not. (laughs) Let me assure you, you are very fast. Because I don't mean speedy. Anyone who was brought up in a church that used the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed will be familiar with the quick and the dead. So are you quick? (laughs) Glad to hear it. Quickened in your spirit or not, we're one or the other. So we either quickened or we're dead to the Holy Spirit. And the creeds were quoting 2 Timothy and Acts chapter 10. He shall come again with with glory to judge the quick and the dead. He ascended to heaven. He sits on the right hand of God Almighty. Else should I. From there, he shall come to judge the quick, the spiritually quickened, and the dead, the spiritually dead. Which are we? And you can answer that for yourself. We turn to Luke's Gospel, if you have your Bible with you, Luke chapter 9. There'll be a fair amount of skipping from the scriptures. Verse 60, oh sorry, 57. The cost of discipleship. It happened as they journeyed on the road and someone said to him, I will follow you, Lord, wherever you go. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't saying it's wrong to bury your family members. 
He's saying, let the spiritually dead, let the non-quickened look after that. You go preach the word. This is how important this is. <coughs> These talks this summer are based on Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. So can we go there? Verses 4 to 10 of chapter 2. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're quickened. That's where you sit. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, this is one of the best verses in the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Thank God. We don't have to do it. It's been paid up front. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Why in the name of heaven people would want to earn their own salvation is just not understandable. It's unbelievably silly. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Other translations we heard last week, it says masterpiece. You might not feel like an oil painting or a tremendous sculpture, but God Almighty declares you to be one of his many masterpieces. Whether you like it or not, and I assume that we do like it, you are one of God's masterpieces. That's a lot to rejoice in. And we didn't have to do anything for it. The good works that Christ has already prepared for us does not get us into heaven. We're already there. The good works are what he asks us to do on his behalf for the length of our Christian life here on earth. It's not a passport. It's not payment. It's not something we deserve. It isn't earned. It isn't wages. We do it because of his great love for us and in return our great love for him. Or at least that is the idea. There are people who can't get that in, Christ, in the Christian church and I've met an awful lot. If you imagine the deepest place on earth somewhere in the Western Pacific is the Marianas Trench. It's 36,000 plus feet deep. Now imagine if you put that at the bottom of Mount Everest. And Everest is 29,000 something. And you had to get out of the bottom of the Marianas Trench and climb to the top of Everest. All on your own. No help. No flippers to swim. No oxygen tanks. No axes to climb. No ropes. No nothing. It's you on your own. You're dead already, aren't you? And yet people try to earn their salvation or think they should with that kind of mentality. And yet in Christ Jesus, as we've just read, you are already soaring way beyond Everest. You are in the heavenly places alongside Christ Jesus. 
whether you realise it, whether you feel like it, is irrelevant. That is where you sit. I'm not saying it. Jesus says it. So believe it if you haven't already, because it's true. Irrespective of what's going on in your life, you are sitting alongside Christ in heavenly places, and Mount Everest is a pimple way below your feet. That's a gift from Almighty God, worth having. And we don't do that to earn it. So, can we turn to Isaiah? This is our righteousness, our own worth. If you want it, Isaiah 64, chapter 6. We are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness like filthy rags. That's our best efforts. That's our holiness based on our efforts. The Hebrew translation is a lot more unpleasant than what I've just read. I'm not going to repeat it because it isn't nice. If you're interested, Google it. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6, the literal Hebrew translation isn't pleasant. And that is our own righteousness, our personal efforts at holiness. What in heaven's name does our sin look like? So why would anybody want to swap the righteousness of Christ which is given with an open hand to our own efforts? Back to Ephesians, please. Chapter 1. Verse 15. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. This is the prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, El Shaddai, God Almighty, may give to you, sitting here today in Waterloo, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You are a saint. Not one of these plaster cast images that we see on church walls. You are a living saint in Christ bound for eternity, where your place is already booked. This is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Who else sits at the right hand of Christ in the heavenly places? The right hand of God in the heavenly places, we do. We've already covered that. Far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. This is God's free gift. I'll say something you obviously know. This is blindingly obvious. Jesus of Nazareth was dead. 
Had he been left as a human being, which he was, his body would have decayed, and you could go to his gravesite now. But he didn't. Because of the Holy Spirit. The Ruach HaKodesh, the breath of God, raised Christ in a second. This is the DNA of God, the very being of God, entered into the dead Jesus of Nazareth and raised him. <coughs> That's who lives in you. That self-same Holy Spirit. You have God's DNA in your very bone marrow. That's a free gift. Why would anybody want to do it in their own efforts? When you became a believer, that same Holy Spirit that raised Christ raised you from the deepest pit into the highest heavenly places. What does our righteousness look like? Well, we look at a few examples. Matthew 17. Verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So, that is what you look like. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. From the filthy rags of Isaiah, you look like that in the sight of God the Father. It might not look like that in the mirror, but it does look like that in God's sight. Mark chapter 9. Repetition can be a very good thing. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Do you like your mirror image? Because that's what you look like. Luke, chapter 9. Verse 28. About eight days after this, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. Behold, two men talked with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's why you look like that. That's why your robes are white and glistening. Because of Jesus' decease. That's the price. That's the gift. That's who you are in Christ. You are transformed. You are quickened. And one of the last people to be quickened in Jesus' life, if you can turn to Luke 23... Verse 32. 
crucifixion. There were two others criminals led with him to be put to death. And verse 39 to 43. Under the um, heading that Pilate had put up, this is the king of the Jews. In Greek, Latin and Hebrew, one of the criminals who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us as well. But the other answered, rebuking him, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? The same condemnation as what or who? The same condemnation that God's son is under. This man was saved. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. Now, I don't know what they've done. But if that crucifixion was just reward for their deeds, they must have done something horrific, because the execution is horrific. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a man with a quickened spirit. And Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As Jesus, his dying saviour, was next to him, that man was saved in those very seconds. And he didn't have much of a life left. This was the 14th of Nisan. This was Pesach, Passover, the eve of. And Passover would begin at sunset on the 15th, so there was very little time left. This was about the ninth hour, approximately in our clock, round about three o'clock in the afternoon. And by the evening, sunset, the new day begins and the executed would have to be off the cross and dead. So this man only had a couple of hours, maybe three, left. And he was being quickened, quickened as his saviour died next to him. And how is that for a miracle? This man, who was getting the punishment he deserved, had the Ruach HaKodesh inside him. The breath of God. So do you. He couldn't have much of a reward for his deeds because he only had a couple of hours of being a believer. And yet Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And he will be sitting up on the right hand side of God with you. With Jesus. It's one hell of a price to pay for our salvation. And Jesus paid it. So, when Satan reminds you of your sinful past, and he does, he loves to send you on a guilt trip, remind him of his, and remind him of his future. Isaiah chapter 14. Verse 12, in Luke chapter 10, when the apostles had returned from being sent out by Jesus and they rejoiced because the demons obeyed them, and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
Chapter 12, Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God and sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farther sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And where did it get him? We will ascend into the heights of heaven. Not because we boast, but because God did it for us in his son. And if you want to remind him of his future, turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. If you don't know it, we are in a spiritual warfare when you see all the troubles that's on. The news in your newspapers, this is satanic. This is Satan's war on the saints, war on you. Even in the eternal childish arguing over Brexit, is Satan stirring the pot about your life? And you ain't seen nothing yet. There'll be a lot more to come. He only has a short time, and he knows it. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 1. And an angel came down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And verse 7. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations, which are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and there they will be tormented forever. When the devil reminds you of your failure and your sin, of your past, remind him of his past. And remind him of his future. He doesn't like it. It's said that Martin Luther. Was approached by the devil in an inn one time. With a list. Like a loo roll. With all Luther's sins on it. And Luther looked at it and said. You've missed some off. <laughs> and then he got a pen. And wrote across it. Cleansed by the blood of Christ. Amen. Threw the list into the fire. And chucked the ink pot at the devil. Whatever works. When your conscience, as appointed by the Holy Spirit, convicts you, not Satan, and you have a desire to be put right with God, that's the action of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's the sign of a transformed life. 
Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. And Isaiah 51. Verse 12, <clears throat> I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die, and the son of a man who will be made like grass? Do not be afraid. Some weeks ago, um, Kate was speaking in the main hall, and she was looking at the Our Father this is where we come to the good works that God or Jesus has already prepared for us. We've said the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, thousands of times. We all know the words. It's easy to say it, if not glibly, then almost on autopilot. But there's a phrase in it that clues you in to what God wants from you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But before you can say on earth as it is in heaven, it gets a lot more personal than that. You can't say that for someone else. We were all, all had the occasion to pray for people. Wouldn't it be great if so-and-so had thy kingdom come, thy will be done in their heart? Wouldn't it be great for Liverpool? Wouldn't it be great for the houses of Westminster if they could say thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Wouldn't it be great for Great Britain? But before you do that, you have to say it here. Thy kingdom come here. Thy will be done here first. And what you're doing is signing a blank check to Almighty God. Now, having worked in a bank for 40 years, I can assure you that signing a blank check is not a clever thing to do. And we're all of the age when we know what a checkbook looks like, even if we don't see it very often. And what you're doing is saying to Almighty God, whatever you ask for, whenever you ask. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Before you can say it to anyone else, you have to point towards yourself. So the next time you have occasion to say the Lord's Prayer, if you don't mean that, don't say it. Because God will take you at your word and will come calling. Now he isn't some Soviet taskmaster, some commissar. God will never take from you what you can't give. He will never ask you for what you haven't got to give. But he will ask you for what you can give him. And you can give him more than you think. And I'm not talking about cash. That's the easy option sometimes. And certainly the first thing you can think of. And yes, 
God can ask for your money. And I'm not trying to predict what you may be called upon to do. But it comes under the heading, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And if you ever say it, make very sure you mean it. If you've never thought about it before. Because God will come and ask you in the nicest, kindest, most loving way. To do the good deeds, whatever they may be, that he's already prepared for you. If his kingdom has come and his will is to be done in you, then that's okay with him. But don't say it lightly, because God believes what you say. So before you ever pray that prayer for anyone else, if you've never done it before, make sure you've said it for yourself first. Because if you haven't said it for yourself, you can't say it for anyone else. And God will take you at your word, and he will surprise you but the good news is in Ephesians he knows this and he has provided Ephesians 2 the verse we read before we are his workmanship his masterpiece verse 10 created in Christ Jesus For the good works which God has prepared beforehand. He knows what he wants you to do. He's not going to fling you out somewhere and let you get on with it and say see ya. Whatever it is he wants from you, you will be able to give. Just trust him. Which is a wonderful thing to say. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You do not lack a single spiritual blessing. Or that's a lie. That doesn't mean to say we can't grow and mature in Christ and we can't learn to do more and be more able in whatever our calling is, but we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is before Christ Jesus asks you to do the good works that he's already prepared for you to do. He's already got this sealed. He knows what he wants from you. And he knows you're more than capable of giving it him. Verse 19. We read it before. The exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. His mighty power is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. You are provided for. So don't be afraid. On Calvary, as we were having the price paid for us, God allowed his son to be horrifically tortured and he looked away. The filth that Isaiah mentions, which is our holiness and our righteousness, so God knows what our sin is. And God does know what our sin is because he threw it all on Christ. All our sins, all the things that would take us to hell, all the filth that is in the universe ever became Christ's. So that we would look like the transfigured Jesus in the Gospels that we've just read. That's the deal. That's the price that's paid. We get the righteousness. Christ 
gets the sin and the fury of God. The biggest word in the English language is if. If you accept Calvary, then like the criminal on the cross, you're already in paradise with Christ Jesus. If you die today, if you die in 100 years. If you reject Calvary, the wrath of God, which he poured out on Christ, is all yours. Which would you rather? Habakkuk chapter 1 says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Jesus of Nazareth became wickedness in the entire meaning of the word. He became vile in the sight of God and the Father looked away. In Matthew 27, quoting Psalm 22, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And shortly after that, he died. God forsook him. He let him go and turned him over to the charming power of Satan. So that will never happen to you or me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For we... He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's the deal. There's the transaction. There's the payment. There's our eternal life. This is not your reward. Heaven is not a reward. It's a free gift with an open, empty hand given by God. Peter, chapter 1. Verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This was on the Transfiguration Day. We saw his majesty. That's what you look like. This is the deal. This is the payment. This is the transaction. Jesus paid a hell of a price for our righteousness, and it's a free gift. Back in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1. Sorry, beg your pardon, verse 5 and 6. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. You're accepted. You're there already. There's no striving. This is the price that Jesus paid. This is the free gift, not a reward for us. Why would anyone want to earn their own salvation? And in a slightly different tack, why would we put others on a pedestal as we do why would we put other Christians on a pedestal popes, bishops, archbishops whatever pastors, and I mean no jibe at anybody even your mum or your dad or your husband or your wife they don't go on pedestals we're all the same we are all sinners saved by grace there are no superstars 
in Christianity. <clears throat> Excuse me. Psalm 65. <clears throat> Sorry, I beg your pardon before we go there. Ephesians 2, again, verse 18. Through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are a saint in heaven right now. Your place is booked and secure. That's a good deal. Psalm 65 Verse 3. Sorry, verses 1 to 3. Praise awaits you in Zion. For to you the vow shall be performed, O you who hear prayer. To you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Our day of atonement, our Yom it was a good Friday that's where the atonement was paid that's where you were bought and paid for and released into a freedom that is just too unbelievable to contemplate and it's given freely as an open handed gift to you if you haven't taken it taken it now all your transgressions are atoned for in Proverbs 22, verse 1, it says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. You have a good name in heaven. You don't need it anywhere else. Because of the loving favor of Almighty God. We look at Psalm 71. Therefore, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. This is verse 1. Never let me be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. It's a done deal. He's already done it. Verse 15. Same psalm. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all of the day, for I do not know their limits. The salvation of Almighty God, the love of Almighty God, the righteousness of Almighty God is limitless. And it's all yours, <coughs> freely given. Psalm 73, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. 
This is where we are if we are in Christ Jesus. Back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's prayer for our realisation. Chapter, uh, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Your name is in that. Put your name there. Take your pen, write your name in the Bible there. That's where you are. That's where you belong. That's where Christ put you. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. To be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. His Holy Spirit, the DNA of God, lives in you. The Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints of which you are one with what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the heavenly blessings given to you that you be filled with all the fullness of God. His love, the width and the length, the depth and the height is limitless. It might be stating the obvious over and over and over again, but sometimes I don't think we realise what we have, what's been given to us, and it didn't cost us a thing. On the Christian TV channel, which I don't watch that very often, but the TBN UK, I flipped on it a week or so ago and they were changing programmes. And in the in-between minutes or two, they showed you street interviews that they were doing with mainly young people. And they were asking them, do they believe in God? And if not, what do they put their faith and trust in? Now, obviously, this is edited. And all the answers that were there were people who didn't believe and there were various answers as to what they put their faith and trust in. Themselves, that was popular. Family. Friends. And what I love this one. One bloke, he sounded as though he was from somewhere down south. He had a southern accent. And he said, and I quote, football. Which is a form of religion anyway. Now it is. And it shouldn't be. Praise the Lord. The late and great football coach, Bill Shankly, was wonderful with quotes. He was a very, very entertaining man. He'd have made a wonderful teacher. Imagine if Shankly was your history teacher. He'd make history come alive. He oozed enthusiasm. And I'm speaking as a very lapsed Evertonian. He would make a quadratic equation sound exciting. And if you don't know what a quadratic equation is, you are very, very lucky. Stay that way. And he once said, some people think football is a matter of life and death. And he didn't like that. Because he said, I can assure them it's much more important than that. Now, it's a wonderful quote. It's a great soundbite. He was a very funny, entertaining man. And he was wrong. Totally. 
Football has its place, and it's very, very low down in the great scheme of things. I'm not criticising people who like football. If you have a season ticket, you go home and away to watch your team, fine. Be happy when they win, be disappointed when they lose, fine. But when it takes over your life, when it becomes your God, and in this city, football and footballers are definitely idolised. It's idolatry, it's a sin. A friend of mine many, many years ago, Christian, I had a season ticket for his favourite team, and he said to me one time, he realised that the outcome of the results on a Saturday, if it went against him, was spoiling his life. And he couldn't do it anymore. He said, it's ridiculous. You know, my age, an adult, he was only about 30. So he gave his season tickets away and he never went again. Now, that might be drastic, but he thought that that was the right thing to do. I know someone who lives not far from me. I see him regularly in the gym. And the team he follows, he will tell you straight, if they get bees on a Saturday, it spoils his life. He goes home, he's got a season ticket, goes home, and he goes to bed, and he doesn't want to know anybody. <laughs> Grow up. Get a life. That is wrong. Support whatever team you like, but put it in its perspective. And you don't worship football teams. I'm sorry, but in this city... I think too many people do. And I'm not being partisan or biased with or against anyone. <coughs> Support your team, enjoy the game. But the idolatry that goes with it. And on another sadder note, a few years ago, the chief constable of Glasgow said, in his opinion, the Glasgow derby should be cancelled forever. Because whenever Celtic played Rangers... The cases of domestic violence shot up. That's the source of idolatry, which is downright sinful. The thing about this is, it's impossible. We all say that nothing is impossible to God. Well, there's something that is. It's impossible for God to love you anymore. He can't possibly love you any more than he does. And the stubbornness and obstinacy of God, he digs in his heels and he point blank refuses to love you any less. That's a good deal. That's where you put your faith. That's where you put your love. So we should trust God. In Proverbs chapter 3, and we all know this, it's very, very famous. Trust in God with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. That should be where you put your faith and your trust. We are righteous because El Shaddai gives us the righteousness of Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. That's what you look like in God's sight. Whether you want to accept it, whether you can't accept it, this is the truth. You are a saint because El Shaddai says so. And you are transformed 
The DNA of Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. That is a very good deal. Hallelujah.